I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of Bruce Timm and Eric Radomski's 1993 movie, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And guys, this week... Or last week, in fact, Riverdale debuted on TV in America. (laughs) And so I'm kind of vaguely aware of Archie as a concept, but they're doing this as like a Twin Peaksy murder mystery. And I hear it's not. Twin Peaks. Nice. And I hear that that's kind of like not entirely out of the ordinary for Archie, that they do have kind of weird high concepts within this stuff. So, like, how. How do these? How are these concepts going to fit together? And how has Archie functioned as a comic book for all the, these years? I mean, Archie is such a, a weird thing for three Brits to sit here and talk about because, um, you know, even as someone who spent his entire life reading American comics, like Archie is just not a thing that we get. And up until the recent stuff. I don't know anyone who I know in this country who reads comics and who would have read Archie as a kid because they don't seem to have got shipped over here. They don't seem to have got republished here. You know, we had our own kids' comics, you know. They had Archie, but we had the Beano and the Dandy and Mm -hmm. the Beezer and Wizard and Chips. Like, I I know what I'd prefer, you know. Um, (laughs) But but, but to Americans who are into comics, this is like, you know, still one of the most iconic sets of characters imaginable. I mean, it's not Sorry. like Archie's pop culture didn't make it over here. Like, we yes, had the band, that's... and we had, like... We had the band. Josie and the like Pussycats S- cartoon Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I, think mo- I think most of my experience of, like, the Archie characters would have been, like, gags in things like The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, sort of, like, outside of the Riverdale gang, um, you know, I know that Archie did Sabrina the Teenage Witch, I know they did some Sonic the Hedgehog comics, I know they did some Turtles comics that I read as a kid. Um, but... Yeah, it's um, so it, it, it's a difficult thing for us to talk about the context of. I, I, I guess I understand that it's a comic that is about kind of like teen romance. What I don't understand is kind of how there is this witch in the same universe and well, okay. zombies and stuff like that, I hear. Basically, like, I think Sabrina was actually from a different comics company and they got bought in and they just sort of mashed her up with the Riverdale type universe so i think that explains how that happened but the the more recent stuff is just because basically the people who are running archie comics at the moment are shit hot so like (laughs) they they know how to keep archie relevant and so they're doing it yeah they've basically taken the premise and done lots of different they've gone by lots of different ways to 
make it a bit more relevant and a bit more interesting just by putting it into lots of different contexts and timelines. So, like, I mean, I think probably the first really successful example was probably Afterlife with Archie. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, it was, I mean, did, was it, did, do they kill Archie? Is it like the idea is that Archie dies um, and there's a zombie apocalypse or... I'm not sure uh, if Archie's it's dead. There's a, yeah. It's like, as far as I know, it's just the idea of there is a zombie apocalypse in Riverdale mm. and it's the same characters, but in this like completely new context and yeah. it's like tongue in cheek but also straight down the line this is a relatively recent comic though yeah this is the last few years, few years. Ago, yeah but then even um, before that they were doing things like they introduced kevin keller who was like a gay character into this archie verse which yeah, you would expect sort of like tried to archie, make it modern and relevant didn't they yeah Not like archie kind of strikes you as a sort of very conservative romance type mm comic but actually mm. it's pretty progressive and that's that's kind of indicative of what they've been doing with it i, I get cool. the impression that until like the early 2000s I, I imagine even if they were i assume they were still publishing them but i imagine that like the riverdale set comics probably hadn't changed at all in 50 years or whatever and then as of the kind of from about maybe you know the the mid noughties onwards they probably they sort of started to whether it's kind of new people got involved editorially um and then in the last few years you know they've they've really made an effort to attract like top line comics creators to do um you know they've done new ongoing series in in a kind of a new continuity with with all of the characters and i haven't read the archie title because it's um not because it's i haven't read the archie title title which is uh mark wade and fiona staples but i hear that that's very good because it's mark wade and fiona didn't Staple. chip starsky um, do some as well and chip starsky did jughead which yep. is you know it's chip chip starsky and erica henderson um of squirrel girl did jughead and then ryan north took over jughead from starsky um so i haven't got as far as the ryan north issues yet but i've read about six issues of of Zdarsky's Jughead and it's like you can't imagine a more perfect melding of creator and character it's it's <laughs> it's really good it's really good fun um, and actually what's quite interesting is um, they also reprinted old Jughead stories in the back of each issue with Zdarsky doing an introduction to them and actually those are pretty good fun like having literally never read any classic Archie stuff I can see like the appeal of the Jughead stuff particularly um, like as a character and as a concept he is quite interesting and quite funny um but the the Zdarsky stuff as you would imagine is is really good fun so um you know for i i, I think you know they have got a quite limited um you know premise and set of characters to play with like you know they could you know they could do new things but the point is people come to archie comics for those characters because it's it's that tradition and i think it seems that in recent years they've done quite a good job of taking that quite limited um, premise and, and expanding it quite well um, and you know so whether or not Riverdale turns out to be successful um, it's not an unprecedented idea to take the characters and do something completely different. The interesting thing that it reminds me of is there was um, one of the Criminal uh, miniseries uh, Criminal is the Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips <laughs> series yeah. um, one of those series was basically around a bunch of characters that were essentially the Archie characters as adults um, so it's it's not the first it's uh, Last of the Innocents Last of the Innocents yeah I'm going to have to yeah. go and reread that now <laughs> Um, yeah, I think the first time I read it, I had no knowledge of that, so it went completely over my head. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it, you know, certainly, again, because it's one of these things where um, American 
people of a certain age or you know anyone who's grown up in America over the last 50 years will have that as part of their cultural tradition there's already a tradition of taking the concept and putting a, a dark or, or an interesting spin on it just not in an official sense like I'm sure that that Brubaker Philip story is not the first time that someone's done that with the Archie characters or you know a thinly veiled pastiche of them um, what makes it interesting is that now it's being done officially um, you know, it would be kind of like, you know, I've, there's been many things over the years where you'd have British creators doing something with, um, like, the, the Beano or Dandy characters under a different name. Um, um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Century comes to mind with some of the stuff Alan Moore was doing in, in Century 2009. <laughs> um, and um, just to go off on a bit of a tangent, but um, Knight and Squire from the um, Batman comics... Um, the squire is named Beryl, and she's basically supposed to be Beryl the Peril, which is one of these <laughs> things that snuck under the radar for uh, for DC. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's it, it's obviously something that people have been doing for a while, but it's quite interesting to see the company themselves do it officially. I mean, the interesting thing is that having done that with Archie, like, DC essentially copied the idea for their Hanna-Barbera titles. Yeah. So they have the, like, zombie apocalypse... Uh, Scooby Doo comic and the post apocalyptic, yeah, and the post apocalyptic wacky races, which is meant to be even more dreadful, <laughs> yeah. And apparently, but, the like the Flintstones one's apparently quite good, isn't it? Yeah, I've heard people kind of raving about the Flintstones ones, yeah. Um, if it had been, I saw that, um, I don't know if it's just the covers, but I saw some like preview art that was done by Amanda Connor. And I think if it had been Amanda Connor actually drawing the issues, I would have bought that straight off the <laughs> bat to give it a go. Uh, as it is, I didn't, but yeah, I've heard good things. Okay, so I'm going to surmise here from everything you said that basically Archie is a bunch of like very well-known stereotypes so that it's probably quite yeah. easy for them to put them into a bunch of other settings. I think archetypes is there. Yeah. Is yeah. fairer yeah. than stereotype, yeah. but yeah. Yes, yeah, you just chose the more correct word. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's so that's why they're able to do it and they've been doing it more recently and so Riverdale is more a product of that than any kind of weird history of Archie. It's more Archie has yeah. been this all-American all thing for decades and suddenly they've got exciting people running the brand and going, what can we do with it? Yeah, pretty much. Have either of you watched Riverdale, by the way? No, because it hasn't aired in the UK yet. It's on, it's on <laughs> Netflix. Oh, is it? Yeah, day after hour. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, maybe maybe I will <laughs> I, watch I it. I literally watched it on Netflix yesterday, so. Oh, cool. No, well, well, James, just briefly, any good? Yeah, I enjoyed Like, the thing is, having never, like, I've never read anything except The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, um, which is also excellent. Uh, so I, I had no preconceptions beyond what I knew from, like, cultural osmosis. Um I didn't really expect to like it because I'm not really into like teen high school stuff. Uh, but as it turned out, I'm really into it, like surprisingly into it. <laughs> yeah, I've heard lots of good things and I thought that it looked terrible when it, when it first announced <laughs> like what the concept was in the first and the first like promo images. I thought, oh, God, that's going to be horrendous. But everyone said good things about it. So I'm, I'm quite excited. Well, I was going to say one of the people behind it is Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa. I was literally who, just about to ask James if you'd ever read any of his Marvel stuff because yeah. he's he's basically the guy who's driven the Archie stuff in the last few years and I know that he's been working on Riverdale as well. But Yeah, like his his Marvel stuff was fairly good. It wasn't like standout brilliant, but it was okay. And then he went back to TV and did stuff like Glee. I think he was quite a big presence on, certainly in the latter half of the show. 
and like I I get that kind of vibe from Riverdale. Only he's he's actually chief creative officer at Archie now. I'm just reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I also like how now the CW has these kind of brighter and frothier versions of the DC characters, but yeah, has a dark and gritty take <laughs> on Archie. It's fantastic. <laughs> If you just... I, think, I think that's the right way round, to be honest. <laughs> uh, okay, well, um, you know, I, I imagine we're probably all going to catch up with Riverdale, so maybe there's a maybe there's a Riverdale bonus episode in the future of this podcast, <laughs> somewhere closer to the end of the season. Depends depends whether we all stick with it. We need something to get us through to Twin Peaks later in the year, so Twin <laughs> Peaks will have to do. Okay, well, we'll move on to this week's comic comic book movie and TV news. Um, and just a heads up, listeners, we are recording this episode slightly in advance, so if there's anything that's broken over the last few days as you're listening to this, we're probably not going to be covering it. Uh, so this is stuff that kind of broke um, the week before you're listening. Uh, but the first piece of news, um, the X-Men TV series, not Legion, the actual uh, kind of more mainstream, it sounds, X-Men TV series is actually ramping up. The pilot is going to be filmed and it's going to be directed by Brian Singer. Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, sorry, I, did I, I do that Brian out loud? Singer would have got bored of X Men by now. I've certainly got bored of Brian Singer. <laughs> well, let me tell you a bit about oh, the pilot. See whether it sounds interesting. Um, we've had the confirmation that there will be Sentinels as part of this show, and it's going to be um, about a family, uh, like two ordinary parents, who discover that their child possesses mutant powers, and they go on the run from the government, from the government, and join with an underground network of mutants. Um, and apparently, flying <laughs> um, in sharp contrast to what we found out about Legion, there will be characters in this that you will recognise from other Fox uh, films, X Men properties. Doesn't doesn't that concept sound a bit like they've focused on the wrong thing? It sounds like, all like the introduction a is generic kind of TV pilot. Well, it, well all the, much the same no, way no, no. That, I mean, uh, like Agents all the Shield all the all the like you know synopses say. It's about two parents who discover their child is a mutant. And it's like, surely the mutant is the main character. Why? I, I quite like that as a, as a flip. Like, we've, well, like, we've as... seen the mutant as the main character a bunch of times. Well, it's a... But is that, it is just that seems like a if... bit like doing a, a film about, um, you know, like... To, I mean, to just to use the really, you know... Um, unsubtle example but like to do a film about slavery in america and focus on how it affects the slave owners yeah or like like, or like a story about parents who are dealing with the fact that their child is gay or something like that you know that's not the that's not the story that hasn't been told i think uh, well i i I don't know i think that i think what you're saying is the story that we see 90 percent of the time and i don't think like it is still a superhero show about mutants it's not actually i mean the metaphors might be there but we don't know how heavily this show will lean on metaphors um i don't think you can make that straight equation to the to the other things in this in this perspective i i, I don't know i think it I've, i mean in x-men stuff i've seen mutants deal with becoming mutants a lot of times it might be interesting to focus more on the way that people view them. And it probably, I think you, what you'll probably find is that these are your POV characters who were then flung into a world of mutants. And we probably, you know, you'll probably yeah, see that I mean, it just addressed as the series progresses. It seems a bit like doing a ser- doing a Buffy series, but her mum's the main character instead of Buffy. <laughs> oh, Woodwatch. 
<laughs> yeah, if it was Christine Sutherland, <laughs> obviously, but yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, 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 for me, the thing that just stood out about this premise is that it is. It it seems like very generic. Um, <laughs> oh know, yeah, this, for sure. this, this is a Fox TV series, main Fox channel. It sounds to me like like Agents of Shield is. Oh yeah, we're a Marvel property. You're not really. You're a kind of like police procedural with marvelly stuff in it and it still is kind of that show um even i guess they've they, I guess they've introduced more marvelly kind of stuff but it, it is at its heart a procedural show they go on a mission each week and come back and there's a team who work at like the central office um that's <laughs> i mean that's what this 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 strikes me this reminds me of uh, you know a, a bunch of shows that i probably normally wouldn't watch <laughs> csi x-men yeah yeah, but I mean, I I think the singer hire more than more than it being singer. Uh, I think it's with these comic book shows now. They're striving to prove that they're cinematic before before they get going, um, which I think is something that Shield failed to do. But you know, we've seen <laughs> the Inhumans is gearing up for its pilot to go on uh, IMAX release yeah. before it goes on TV, and this would presumably be debuting around the same time. The Inhumans pilot is shooting now in Hawaii I believe um, so yeah I, I think maybe it's uh, it's one of those let's roll our money at the pilot and then recoup it over the course of the following season I mean, I do, don't expect any of those blue X-Men on this show <laughs> I do want to make the point that that I don't think they're actually going to have recognisable X-Men from the movies in I think the idea is they will have the dregs of X-Men continuity to play with well, it's an X-Men TV series, so let's hope they have more. <laughs> I mean, that the, definitely uh, counts as dregs. <laughs> the specific quote was, Suffice to say, it's a show that contains some characters that fans will be excited about. I can't talk specifics, but it's not like there are no X-Men in it. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, like, basically, you'll be seeing Madrox and uh, Penance and mm, Maggot. I, d- I could see. All your so, faves. Uh, Marrow. Marrow, definitely Marrow. It depends because apparently this is going to be tied more to the movie universe than Legion is. Um, I, I guess it depends on what timeline or what era and all that kind of stuff. But I, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised to see someone like Iceman show up. I would be surprised. You know? Just, I just think like actors on that kind of tier could show up on TV for a for an episode and leave. Yeah, I guess it's they, more the realization they of the could. powers. <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah I, I think i would need a lot of convincing about this show no it, it just sounds like a generic show with x-men in it whereas legion um i can't wait for so uh yeah legion I, I like definitely... legion does look really impressive but i'm not entirely convinced it's gonna have anything to do with x-men in any established way oh but i don't i don't really care whether it does or not. oh yeah 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 like i just <laughs> i kind of think legion would have been a better show if they had not tied it into x-men at all so apparently the the one the thing that i've heard about legion is uh, because i think some <clears throat> press have seen the first two or three episodes is that the concept of mutants and x-men is in the show and there are lots of mutants in the show um but they're not kind of anyone that you would know by name from the comics they're all just like generic mutanty or people with powers yeah. and they're trying to they're trying to convince uh, the main character that he is a mutant and that he's not mentally ill, um, and that's kind of <laughs> at the heart at the heart of the show. I mean, see, it just 
if that's true, then it seems like they've just, you know, they should have just done it as a standalone thing. Because like, there's nothing inherently interesting about mutants that you couldn't do with your own lore. And the character of Legion sounds like he's been given such an overhaul that why bother using him anyway? IP. Well, yeah, quite. There we go. Um, okay, uh, our next piece of news. This is DC. Um, oh, this Flash movie, you guys. This Flash movie <laughs> is not looking in good shape. So it has lost not one, but two directors. We already knew about that. Um, obviously, uh, Rick Famuyiwa, uh, he had cast, um, you know, cast like Kiersey Clemens in the film as Iris West um, and has now left the project. Um now there's talk, I think there was talk last week that it was going to be possibly delayed um, and wouldn't be turning up in, I think it's due for 2018 at present. But there's now talk that it might not meet a 2018 release. Now, that's not encouraging. The reason behind this, though, emerged that the script is undergoing a page one rewrite, basically everything they've got up to this point is out the door. I mean, and it, they're starting again. It seems like a bad thing when you have a cast but no director or script because like surely yeah. Surely you want your cast to ma- I guess, you know, they can now tailor the script to the cast theoretically, but uh, it seems like in it, mind, it's backwards. By this summer we will have had two Flash cameos in different movies and a full-on team-up movie that he's starred in. So you would imagine they've got an idea of the groundwork they've wanted to lay for this movie in terms of the character. <laughs> um, I, it, This seems like a colossal fuck-up, doesn't it? <laughs> Something has gone very badly wrong. And they've got Ezra Miller. And Ezra Miller, every, every time I see him like on a red carpet or talking about playing the flash seems so up for it and so invested and is an actor that i really like in everything i've seen him in and i do sort of feel like the warner actors have developed stockholm syndrome at this point (laughs) (laughs) well you know there are cool characters that they're excited to play and um you know you can imagine why they would be excited but these films just aren't they're just not coming together around them at this point I mean, there's I mean, not. You, you know, you've got to be fair to Warner's. Like, it's really difficult to figure out a way to put the Flash on the screen and and make him be any good. Um, you know, it's like people have tried, and it's it's it patently just hasn't worked. So you can't blame <laughs> them for not being able to figure out a way to make the Flash good. Oh dear. <laughs> well. I mean, we'll the thing keep, is, I, we'll just I mean, keep the watching obvious the CW thing to you said. yeah. Well, the obvious thing to say is, oh, just give it to the CW guys. But I mean, no. I don't think they should just give it to the CW guys because that would harm the TV show. And it, you know, if they're going to bother doing a movie in a separate continuity, it should be different from the TV show. I'm not saying they have to make it like the TV show, but maybe just look at why the TV show works and how it works, and you can still do something different from the TV show but that takes the right lessons from the TV show and how the TV show presents an identifiable character with that set of powers and and builds storylines around that set of powers and that character and his personality and makes them work. Mm. Um, you know, you, you can do all of that without it just being a carbon copy of ordinary forensic scientist <laughs> Barry Allen. 
Um, by the t-shirt. The, the fact that they're, they're rewriting this, though, from Square One, this was a film that was originally announced with Phil Lord and Chris Miller developing the story for it. Then Seth Graham Smith came on board, and he, uh, you know, he's a writer by trade, um, a novel writer, but still. And then Rip Van So whether it's just that it's got so confused between these three different versions, but I don't know. If I was working at DC, I, I would probably maybe go back and just look at the original work that Lord and Miller did and go, I'm going to trust that these two guys did good work because they tend to, and then maybe rebuild from that. I mean, how do you, you know, Lord and Miller, you know, are ensconced, working, working ensconced at Warner Brothers. Um, you know, I mean, have, have they written Lego Batman movie as well? Uh, no, um, I don't think so. Okay. But the point is, you know, they've done the Lego movie for Warners and that's been a massive success. You've got them on board to do a Flash movie and instead you let them slip through your fingers and go off to Marvel and do a Spider-Man animated movie when they could be doing <coughs> your Flash movie. And like, Well, and, know, and bear in mind they're, they're also at Disney doing Han Solo right now, which is probably taking yeah. up all of their time. But yeah, they... they they had. I mean, I mean, I don't know how any studio has uh, has not tried to lock these two down because you know they've mm. done fantastic work for Sony with the Jump Street movies as well. I mean, now obviously, admittedly, you know, we haven't yet seen what they're like on a superhero thing. Like, you know, I think they're great, but you know, we haven't seen a superhero movie written by them, so we don't know that they definitely can. But they would seem to be such a perfect fit, not just for doing a, a fun, light-hearted superhero thing, but to do the Flash. Um, you know, in terms of what makes a lot of their stuff work, um, the Flash, as DC seemed to want to do it, as the character was presented in Batman v Superman, um, it's just it just baffles me that they can't. I mean, even if you know they get a treatment or whatever from Lord and Miller, and then Lord and Miller go off because they're doing other things, how have DC managed to get themselves in a situation where they don't know what they're doing? How do they not have a blueprint for it by now? Um, and and if they don't, then why are they not going back to what Lord and Miller gave them two years ago or whenever it was and saying, OK, we'll take this as our starting point? Yeah. It's just, <laughs> you know, and it's it's especially frustrating that, that DC are, are screwing up the films and stuff. And, I, you know, I don't even want to get into whether the films that have actually come out are, are good or bad. I'm just talking about the films that they're failing to actually get made at the moment. It's so frustrating that they're doing that at a time when DC Comics, you know, for almost a year now, or certainly half a year, um, have been resoundingly trouncing Marvel in terms of making the most of these characters that they have and telling good stories with them and putting good <laughs> probably, comics out. Probably for the first time um, in about 20 years as well. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, and it, this may not last. It's a bubble that could all completely collapse in, you know, when they actually start to bring in the Watchmen stuff. But, you know, there's there's something good at DC Comics at the moment. There's there's something in the air, and maybe it's just that they're not letting Dan DiDio in be in charge of as much stuff. I don't know. <laughs> but they're getting something right they have creators who've who've got takes on their characters i mean for god's sake just just like just look at what's going on in the comics and just lift a bit of that maybe you know um you've got tom yep, king right it all into watchmen moment. you know <laughs> don't do that but it's just it is just frustrating um you know as a, as a fan of these characters who would like to see as many people as possible you know, i.e. a film going audience get to 
discover what it is that I like so much about these characters. You know, that that's why it hurts when a DC film is bad. It's not that I feel like personally affronted. It's not like it's not that I have a sense of entitlement that I deserve to have a good DC movie. It's like you know, I love these characters and would like other people to to feel that as well. And mm. it's it's not going to happen with a Flash movie that's had everything about it chucked out and getting the bloke who's done Guy Ritchie's King Arthur to <laughs> yeah, that's the write. that's the concern as well. The writer that they've hired, Joby Harold, um, he uh, has written yep King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, which I think should have been released about a year ago now, but keeps getting pushed back. Um, apparently he's also written the screenplay for a Robin Hood movie that's in pre-production. Um, <laughs> the Robin Hood and the only thing I've movie. seen of his, because it's the only thing that's been released, is Awake, which he wrote and directed back in 2007, uh, a film with Hayden Christensen and Jessica Alba, which is a film where Hayden Christensen wakes up during surgery but can't move because he uh, is still paralysed from the anaesthesia. That's a horrible movie. Horrible, Is there a more mid-noughties phrase than a film starring Hayden Christensen (laughs) and Jessica Alba? Does that really not just date something to a very specific year? (laughs) 2005, Uh, I assume that. 2007. (laughs) Just just right in the end of the Hayden Christensen wave. I watched that film. It was really bad. Um, But okay, so we'll see. Who knows? Maybe... Maybe putting it on hold, rewriting the whole thing, and actually getting it right is better than rushing it out like I'm, Suicide Squad. I'm just like wondering that. whether who who is going to admit first that the movie is not happening? Will it be Fox with Gambit or Warner with Flash? Or Shazam? Shazam got a writer this week as well. <laughs> <sighs> no, right. I, I I think Flash will unless they ditch the whole thing. I think Flash will happen. Well, see how Justice League um, does before you say Flash. Yes, yeah, so I happen. think just <laughs> Justice League is crucial right now because Justice League could put the kind of skates on a bunch of films, get get others put into fast forward. I mean, look at Suicide Squad. Before Suicide Squad, I imagine their idea was we'll probably do Suicide Squad too, and instead we're getting Gotham City Sirens. Um, which, um, and in fact, David Ayer this week said that he regretted not having the Joker as his main villain in Suicide Squad, to which everyone who watched the movie went, no shit, but also not that Joker. (laughs) Anyway, so that's DC. Um, It would be nice if we could report on some positive DC stuff soon. I mean, hopefully they smash Justice League out of the park and then we can start getting excited about those movies at least. Um, We have reported positive DC stuff. It's just all been on the telly. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) That That is is very, very true. Um, Okay, um, we'll move on to our final piece of news now. And there is a a big old spoiler alert going in front of this. Um, So if you don't want to know anything about the M. Night Shyamalan movie Split, which was released a few weeks ago in cinemas, um, fast forward to our main Batman Mask of Phantasm discussion now. um, Because I'm going to put in a big old spoiler for the end of Split. Can I can I just say that um, I think because bearing in mind the subject matter of this podcast, I think just saying that we're going to talk about it is probably in itself a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that as he was saying it. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, I mean, I think we're three weeks we're three weeks away from the release of Split at this point. I think I think most people who will have wanted to see it will have seen it, and if not, I think they will have been spoiled already because. 
none of us have certainly seen it and we all found out independently without trying to i don't think any of us were desperately googling what's the end of split um Uh, actually i I did find out by looking because i saw people (laughs) saying that there was one and i thought well i'm not going to go and see it so i went and looked up what it was and then i went oh i might go and see it okay well let's tell any listeners who don't know yet at the end of split um bruce willis turns up and um says uh Oh, I used to know a story that was like this one. It was uh, about Mr. Glass, who uses the actual line from the film. Oh, they called him Mr. Glass. So Bruce Willis turns up and basically reveals that Split is taking place in the same cinematic universe. We've got another one as <laughs> Unbreakable. Um, and so the Shyamalan superhero universe apparently is now a go. That Split is, it turns out that basically James McAvoy's character in the film is some kind of super-powered creature as well. And it's these it's powers that have been brought around by trauma, which is the same as Bruce Willis's character in Unbreakable and Mr. Glass. Um, and that M. Night Shyamalan is now actively working on an Unbreakable sequel. Um, he's spoken about that publicly at this point. And given that Bruce Willis turned up in Split, suggests that he's probably on board for this as well. So we've got a new superhero cinematic universe that isn't (laughs) beholden to any comic book law or anything like that and bear in mind i think this is probably a podcast that we have three contributors here who all very much like unbreakable and unbreakable has famously been called by um quentin tarantino the best superman movie ever made so (laughs) yeah but quentin Quentin tarantino doesn't know as much about superman as he'd like no we've i think we've discussed Uh, that on the podcast before (laughs) um i mean yeah i i I don't know if we have talked about it in detail and i'm sure we will do an episode covering it and it has been a while since i saw it so my opinion could change but i remember unbreakable as being a pretty damn great film yeah yeah it's interesting actually when unbreakable came out i remember him talking about how he wanted to do like a trilogy of yes like these kind of movies yeah. and then you sort of assumed after so long he'd moved away from the idea but maybe it's time has just come well and it might be perfect timing given that his his kind of cred has been creeping back up with the films that he, i think probably it, it yeah the visit was... with after earth but he started doing these kind of like from the mind of M. Night Shyamalan movies that weren't even his but he, directions, but he was like producing them. And then <laughs> it does um, amuse me that the marketing has reached the point where they try not to mention that he's directing yeah. them. <laughs> well, I, but I think that's I think that's flipped now because Split was sold on a twist and no, and not just apparently there's a twist in the first act of Split. There's a twist in the third act um, that are all to do with McAvoy's character. And there's this and this seems to me to, for the first time in a long time to be M. Night Shyamalan selling movies again and this did fantastically well at the box office so if there's ever a time for M. Night Shyamalan to get an Unbreakable 2 to happen if he's got Bruce Willis on board and he's riding on the back of a box office hit hey why not it could be terrible though it it, it could be terrible because I think I don't think anyone would argue that M. Night Shyamalan has made a film as good as Unbreakable since Unbreakable I mean there's probably the odd films I mean, I, that I people are fans of truly great film that he's made I think Sixth Sense is, is also great I think it it got a little bit of uh, it became that kind of spoiling that movie became a cliche like that, as if that all that film had was the twist rather than it also being a great like Oscar nominated drama about people dealing with trauma 
I think it's it's really great. I also think Signs is a pretty fantastic. Signs has its moments, but it's yeah. really wrecked yeah, it by has. the ending, and I think a lot of yeah. people forget to look past that. I, I see. I don't hate the ending either. Ah, oh, come on. Well, it ties it into what the film's on. about. Stuff it's silly, it but it apart. does tie into what the film's about. Um, I mean, it's just the the whole water thing is so dumb that it eclipses yeah. everything smart about the film. That's true. Like, it's worth pointing out. Like, I think the the bit where they show the camcorder fo- footage of the alien in Signs does that predate pretty much all found footage films, with the possible exception of the Blair Witch. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's post Blair Witch, but yeah. found footage uh, has horror heritage going back to Cannibal Holocaust. But okay, yeah, fair enough. It's but still that scene is is but yeah, yeah like that scene was legitimately moment. the most terrifying <laughs> thing I'd seen in the cinema. For yeah, yeah, probably ever. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no deny, there is no denying right that M Night Shyamalan has talent, and that Unbreakable is a film that we very much like. And I mean, what better, what better a time in the wider cinematic landscape as well to be doing stuff with superhero characters where you can be a bit more free and experiment with them and and do different stuff. Mm-hmm. And I do like I do like the idea that all of these characters in this in this universe have powers that are brought about by personal trauma that there's no kind of like falling into a vat of acid or or you know <laughs> that would be pretty traumatic thing like that. Well, yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but you know that, that that there is there is this human grounding in all in all of the characters and it's a specific idea that he's got for them. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, uh, not not even just un- Unbreakable Two. I would be interested in seeing him doing this uh, generally. I mean, it made me more interested in Split that that was kind of that was the take on this character that he was a guy who manifested this multiple personality uh, thing and other powers. It seems um, because of stuff that's happened in his past. I mm-hmm. uh, I like the sound of it and um, Unbreakable Two. I don't know. Would you bring back Sam Jackson? Can you bring back Sam Jackson? Or would you want to? Would you want to do something completely? I mean, different? you could br- you could bring him back more easily if they hadn't had the tacked-on caption ending, which is the thing that really slightly ruins Unbreakable. But we can talk about that in more detail when we come to cover Unbreakable. We should do that. We but should do that on the podcast. If it, if it had had the ending that it was obviously supposed to have, then it would be easier to bring him back. Mm. Okay. Well, Unbreakable Two: The Shyamalanverse. Does that work? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> sure. Shyamamatic Sh- universe. I like both of those better than Flyerverse. So, uh. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we'll move on now. That's it for our comic book news section, um, and we will move on to our spoiler-filled discussion of Batman: Mask of the Phantasm. But before any of that, we'll take a listen to a clip from the movie. telling me there were four precincts on Batman's heels and he still got away? (sighs) Unbelievable. Tisk, tisk. And to think our tax money goes to pay those jerks. You! That's right, hearty. Bring in the press, why don't you? What a photo op. The councilman and his wacky pal. You're no friend of mine. Oh, Artie, I'm crushed. 
How the high and mighty forget. Don't you remember you, me, Sally, and the gang? What are you talking about? I never met them or you. I worked for Beaumont. I didn't know what he was doing. Oh, but you knew about it afterwards and put it to good use, eh? <laughs> what do you want? To find out who's iced the old gang. Haven't you read the papers? It's Batman! <laughs> Wrong! It ain't the bat. Nope, nope, nope. I've seen the guy. He looks more like the ghost of Christmas future. Nowhere near as cute as Batboy. You're saying it's someone else? Yeah. Someone who wouldn't mind seeing our old pals out of the way. <gasps> Maybe. Go. Sob. Me too. Okay, so that was a taste of Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Um, okay, so this is a... Uh, it was supposed to be kind of like a straight-to-video movie in the early 90s, uh, riding off the success of Batman the Animated Series on TV, that this was going to be like a feature-length uh, episode of the show. Um, but because the show is doing so well on television, Warner Brothers got interested in releasing it in cinemas... Um, and as such kind of gave the creators a bigger budget to work with and a lot more creative control, but also drastically reduced the kind of amount of time that they were going to have to, to work on it. So they ended up having to really rush it into cinemas. Um, it didn't get much of a marketing campaign because it was such a rush. Um, and they got it, got it out in time for Christmas 1993. Um, that probably ended up being the wrong decision from a uh, marketing standpoint. It didn't make back its budget at the box office um but what it did do was get a lot of critical acclaim and um i think probably won the uh series some more fans um and yeah it's really interesting to look back on as a film that's coming out kind of it, around the same time as the tim burton batmans um and i think doing doing a lot of stuff the same but also very differently um so it's going to be a fun one to talk about. Probably won't be the longest discussion, but I thought we could start off by all talking about our relationships with Batman the Animated Series, um, because obviously this is arriving. I think after the second batch of animated series episodes, it came out in the cinemas. So you you guys probably, being old men, watched every episode <laughs> at the time when they were when they were uh, on TV, right? Nope. <laughs> My uh, the entire not even as a Batman fan. The entirety of my relationship with the Batman animated series is that when I got a Packard Bell Pentium one six six computer, it came with the Batman animated series cartoon maker, which oh, you could plug into the uh, X Men one because it was built on the same technology. Wait, so so how how did that work? I'm I'm now more interested in talking about this than the film. <laughs> it just it had like a selection of backgrounds and a bunch of little characters with animations, and you could put on like speech bubbles and captions and stuff. Oh. Uh, so me and my brother uh, used to spend ages making like Batman, X Men, Spider Man crossover cartoons using this <laughs> this thing. Oh, it sounds absolutely I, wonderful. I don't think I've ever watched the cartoon. Aside from now, aside from when really? I watched this, yeah. Wow. Okay, um, Seb, you you must have a more intimate relationship than James with this show. No, not really. No, <laughs> you haven't watched it either. It's just no. I mean, the uh, neither of the, the 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 big two DC cartoons, or I guess three if you if you count Justice League as well. 
Um, four if you count Teen Titans. I just... I've never been that into animated superhero stuff. And I don't know why that is, but... Um, yeah, I just, you know, Superman animated, not really watched it. I, I used to watch X-Men a bit. I never really got into the Spider-Man cartoon. Um, live, you know, live action, I would usually check something out new when it started. Um, you know, and I, I certainly watched a, a healthy amount of Lois and Clark. But um, I don't know if it was, if it's just the timing of it. Um, because it's, what, it was it 92 that it started? Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't even, don't actually know how and when it was broadcast in the UK. Um, I don't know what channel had it. Whether it was a cable slash Sky channel. I saw it, it as a kid, and we. I don't think we. Well, we didn't have Sky when I was a kid, so I assume mm. that it, it, it at some point turned up on on terrestrial TV. Because I remember as well seeing Batman Beyond as a kid on TV and being very confused by what was going on. Um, <laughs> So, so I had to have had the animated series as as some kind of you know context to be confused by Batman Beyond in the first place. Uh, so uh, they they definitely they definitely aired on terrestrial TV in the UK. But I, think, I just I, think I remember just watching when, bits when and you, when pieces you're a kid, when I was a kid. It's it's quite easy um, for TV to pass you by when you're of a certain age. And I, you know, I would have been like about 10 or so when, um, when Batman animated was starting. And if you don't happen to catch something and get into it, then it's, it's very easy for its entire run to pass you by. Um, and then I'd never really, um, have much of an inclination to, to go back afterwards. Um, I've you know I've I've always I've seen bits of it and I've seen the odd episode and you know I I know you know that it's this very stylish and and cool and interesting thing, um, but I've I've never really been I mean we'll we'll talk in the film about the kind of the design of it and I've I've never been a massive fan of of that Bruce Tim character design like that that style generally. Um, there are there there is stuff about this film that I, I love the the design elements of, but it tends to be um, backgrounds and setting rather than characters. Um, mm. So yeah, it's never felt like something that I've desperately needed to go and seek out. And it's the same with Superman animated. I, I, I thought it was a few years ago actually. I thought you know what I really need to actually sit down and, and watch all of this because it's a you know it's a lengthy TV show about Superman that adapts some classic stuff and some classic characters. Um, and I started it and then I just. Yeah, the, I, I, I don't know why because I don't dislike animation. Um, you know, I, I, I'm definitely into animation as a as a genre for other things. But for some reason, there's just something about superhero cartoons that have never really <laughs> grabbed me the same way the comics have. I mean, which is by... because for a lot of people, especially in Britain, more than in the UK, a lot of these characters. Aside from films, people would only know them because of cartoons. Like the X-Men. When the X-Men film came out, I bet you that most people in the UK who saw that film, if they'd ever heard of the X-Men before, they wouldn't have even known that it was a comic. They would have just thought, oh, it was it was a cartoon in the early 90s. And they would have thought that that's where it started. But then I remember having a conversation with somebody at school who was genuinely surprised when I told him that Superman originated in comics and not in movies. <laughs> so I mean, know. like, I... I did watch a lot of superhero cartoons at the time, 
but I was a pure Marvel guy at the, yeah. back then, and like I had no interest in sort of crossing over to DC canon. Like I, mm. I was massively into the X Men animated series and the Spider Man animated series, and I watched like the Marvel Action Hour, and sometimes they would like show the '60s cartoons, and I watched those. Uh, but it was all Marvel. Like I, I can pretty confidently say I didn't like. I started reading superhero comics probably ninety three, ninety four, and I don't think I read a DC comic until. Uh, in fact, I know the first DC comic I bought, aside from maybe like the odd sort of UK reprint, and that was the Superman Batman uh, issue 25, maybe the one that was uh, Sam Loeb wrote. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. it was that one because Joe Mad did a page in it, so I was like, I'm gonna buy that because Joe Mad's come back to comics, so I think. Seb might know off the top of his head, but I think that was probably like 2000 and... 2006, maybe? I think it might be later than that. Uh... I mean, it was it was more than 10 years anyway, put it that way. Yeah. Mm. Um, it might be about 2006, actually. Okay, so I'm going to end up being the, the, the like, fanboy on this. <laughs> you're you're, this you're the expert then. on this one. <laughs> yeah, well, so I guess last year I ended up getting a, a lot more batman in my life i mean we we we've obviously done batman films on the podcast um i ended up um you know i played uh arkham uh arkham city no which was what's the last game arkham, arkham knight. knight arkham knight yeah. so yeah I, I i mean i played arkham knight and i played the previous two before i played that kind of it across the space of the last 18 months watched um ended up getting uh, you know some Harley Quinn comics last year through the podcast, and um, also read the Cape Crusade: Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture by Glenn Weldon, which <laughs> in which he talks a bunch about the animated series kind of being the nexus of all versions of Batman on TV. That it kind of takes I, a bit I of need everything. To read that one. Oh, it's I, I it's really fantastic. Like Glenn Weldon's um, Superman book, uh, but I haven't read his Batman one yet. I can. So. I I actually listened to the audiobook edition as well, which Glenn Weldon reads. And as a you know, as a, a podcast voice that I was used to, um, I thoroughly enjoyed because Glenn Weldon does lots of voices. He has kind of the Simpsons comic book nerd voice that he does quite regularly throughout it, right. uh, which is funny when he's like reading from Batman zines from the from the early sixties stuff like that. Um, lots of fun. Um, but yeah, so I went off and knowing that I enjoyed Batman the Animated Series as a kid, uh, but without watching a load of it, you know, I was familiar with Mark Hamill's Joker and uh, and vague ideas of certain characters that I could remember. Um, I went back and uh, basically watched all of all of the kind of the original run of the Batman Adventures, uh, sorry, the Batman Animated Series Um until the animation style changes, basically, I watched rewatched all of that, um, and have since as well picked up um, Batman Adventures comics, which um, are being reprinted and are um, so much fun. It's basically the same style as the animated series, um, but in 
in comic form. And um, I've said on the podcast before about how I uh, sometimes read comics uh, with my wife and um, my wife. And when I <laughs> when I read them out loud, I will do voices. So like we've read Saga before and I've come up with voices for all of the different characters. Um, even more fun when you're reading the Batman Adventures where there are voices that I've been listening to over the course of the last six months. And I get to do like my Mark Hamill Joker or my Kevin Conroy Batman, and it's <laughs> it's one of the most enjoyable things. Um, the one I can't, I can't get Harvey Bullock right, just no matter how much I try. So that's that's the one I need to practice on. But yeah, so I I love the animated series. I love the design in it. I'm the polar opposite to Seb. Like I love these kind of designs of these characters. Um, there's there's I I think it has a nice mix. Um, kind of going back to what I was saying about what Glenn Weldon, the point he makes about this being the nexus of all Batman, that there is darkness and there is like some grim stuff that happens in the Batman animated series and the visual style of the architecture and all that kind of stuff. It is quite like gothic Tim Burton Batman and and um, like a dark gritty world, but you'll also get really fun takes on the characters. So Mark Hamill's Joker can come up, come off as um kind of as silly as Cesar Romero but he can also be as chilling as some of the stuff that Heath Ledger does when he gets through his really dark moments um and that's that's what I really like about this is that it, I, I I constantly feel like it's wrong-footing me and that I don't know what I don't know kind of how frothy or uh how dark anything around the next corner is going to be um and, and and also which villain they're going to tackle next as the as the series goes along, and the fact that they created Harley Quinn, um, who in like you know in the animated series is such a messed up character to be introduced in a kids cartoon. It's it's insane. <laughs> Although Harley Quinn is only the second best um, DC Comics character to have been created for Batman the animated series, because uh, the best one is Renee Montoya, who. Weirdly, she appeared in comics before she appeared in the series, but she was created for the series. And then because the series was on the way, they put her in comics as a generic um, Gotham cop um, and then turned her into de- to a detective. And then she oh, was yeah. the character in Gotham Central. Uh, and then she became the question. And like, she is just, she's one of the best DC characters of the <laughs> that's last a, 20 that's years. That's a good piece of trivia. She was created for the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I try to think if that if they. I mean, they, there's there's one villain that turns up. I think called Baby Doll or something like that. Who is terrible? She looks like a character out of um, like Animaniacs or something. Um, who they introduce <laughs> at one point and and it's it's never used again. Um, yeah. I, I, oh well. I could not be more effusive about the animated series, and maybe maybe I will force you guys into watching some further episodes at some point for the podcast, but. Mm-hmm. I thought that given that we have a new, t- a, a very different take on Batman coming up on the screens fairly soon with the Lego Batman movie, that this might be a nice Can't point wait. to, uh, to uh, you know, have have a look at this very particular take on Batman on the big screen as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've been aware of Mask of the Phantasm for like ever since it came out as being like this hugely respected, yeah, like version of the character so i was kind of interested to go and watch it even though i had no particular interest in the animated series i can particularly see why this movie coming out around the same time as the burton movies would be like 
crack to anyone who hated the Burton films. <laughs> like, I imagine that if you don't like like what Burton's doing with Batman, you would like this film. Is that fair? <laughs> uh, I like I sort of found this version of Batman quite Michael Keatony actually. And yeah, I mean, the, and certainly the the Gotham is yeah, the Gotham is straight up Tim Burton, inspired isn't it? by the and like the music is mm-hmm. is very like the Tim Burton. I, I uh, think Danny what I, theme I think what I mean then is more about the kind of the fidelity to some of the core, uh, like Batman lore and um, and the fact that this is a this is a Batman movie that is unequivocally about Batman. He's he's the main character, and the villain is really only there to reflect back on him and for us to understand him more as a character, um, which is which is not what Tim Burton did with his two films. Yeah, true. I mean, I I appreciated that they didn't go through the whole recapping the origin. Like they they did use mm. Bruce's relationship with his parents as a like core idea, but they didn't step us through all the stuff we already knew. Yeah, because I mean that would that was an interesting. I, I was wondering when I was watching it how this would work for someone who hadn't watched any of the animated series. Um, and I should point out, I don't think I'd ever seen Mask of the Phantasm before now either. It was it's the one one part of the animated series that I was c- confident that I'd never seen. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, not none of it rang a bell. Um, but yeah, so f- for you stepping in, does it work as you know you know Batman, but you don't really know the animated series? So do, was there anything that you felt left behind on? no i mean i there was no part of it that i like i honest i honestly didn't know if it was in continuity with the series or not like i i kind of thought this came out and then the animated series was based on it if anything like there was nothing that gave me the impression there was an established world that i was missing bits of and expected to know like all the information i needed was in the film and I, I I didn't assume, apart from the Joker, obviously, that any of the characters who were in this were characters who had otherwise been in the show. Like I I, mm. I, I didn't think, oh, this is the culmination of a plot about a load of mobsters oh, no. who've all already been in the series or anything like that. No. Um, I mean, even you know, even if it had been, um, then I think it does a quite good job of making it not seem like that. You know, if 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 any of these had been characters that had appeared before, um, the movie presents them to you new anyway. Mm. Yeah. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I mean, I think the 
like the only characters who uh, I sort of felt are pre-existing are Batman and the Joker and yeah. Alfred, obviously. Uh, and, and like Alfred you, and you don't. Gordon's in there, isn't he? Well, yeah, but like um, they're, they're recognizable parts of the Batman mythos. Like you don't need exactly. you don't yeah. need to be introduced to them in any deep way because it's mm. Batman, Alfred, and the Joker. Yeah. Um, we should... I, I am so, by the way, I'm, since you mentioned Alfred, like I've, I've nothing wrong with how he's portrayed in his character. I've never liked the animated series character design of Alfred. I don't know what it is, but the, <laughs> the, having him look like the, the, the balding comics version, but with the white hair, it just never feels like Alfred to me, and I don't know why. I've just never liked that version of Alfred. It's an irrational thing, I know. But I don't think there's, yeah. I don't think there's a character used in this movie that I don't like that version of there are there are the occasional ones that pop up in the show i've never never been a real fan of their ras al ghul or of um scarecrow probably um uh, but most of the most of the big characters i tend to i don't know maybe this maybe this was my first my first interaction with batman so if, it, it might be possible that i go back to these as kind of the the proto versions of the characters as far as i'm concerned um, but I, I understand, Seb, that that is most definitely not the case for you. Um, I'm just thinking, though, given that this is um, this is probably a lesser scene, one of our Superman or superhero movies, not Superman. That would be an interesting crossover in here, though. Um, we should probably do a little bit of a recap of of the the general plot. So we kind of pick up on at the start of the film an active Batman in Gotham City uh, he's taking down crims and as he's about to take down one particular crim another uh, another person in a kind of mask and cloak turns up and kills the villain or, or kind of tricks them into killing themselves basically um, and the heat starts uh, starts ramping up on Batman because people assume that this this caped crusader is the main cru- caped crusader, but in fact it's not. It's the Phantasm, um, whose uh, identity is obscured. Um, and then we start um, flashing back into Batman's past and finding out um, about an early relationship he had um, with someone whose father was... Uh, tied up with the Gotham City mob and how that might be relating back to uh, back to the stuff that's going on in Gotham right now. Um, and uh, as we've already mentioned, uh, Mark Hamill's Joker uh, becomes embroiled in this as well. What what did you, what did you guys think about the about the way that this tackles the Batman origin? Because I thought it was interesting how it was doing its kind of individual version of the Batman origin for for the animated universe, um, but it also kind of it didn't deviate away from any of the real core tenets of what the Batman origin is. It just kind of added additional stuff into it. I mean, did it? Well, I mean more with the 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 love story with Andrea and. Those that that's that's all this film specific. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, but it's kind of all tying into him going out on it. You know, we see him head out on his first mission, and we see him discover the Batcave, and we see him uh, talking about the vow he's making to his parents. So yeah, there is, I just there's, stuff, I there's of, recognizable stuff in there as well. I sort of felt like that was just kind of standard continuity insert stuff that you get in adaptations. Like it didn't didn't for me in any way sway like the how the origin works or how it's depicted like 
Hmm. I'm 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 mostly reminded of I'm I'm reminded of Spider Man three where they just kind of shoved an extra bit in Spider Man's origin and you're just like (laughs) yeah whatever. Yeah, Um, I mean it's I mean it's it's not entirely dissimilar to um, what Batman Begins does with Rachel to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's always been well not always but certainly you know as far back as as. Batman's origin has been in its most clearly defined form, which I guess you'd go back to year one for that. There's always been this idea of, you know, there there's the period of of wandering or and the period of trying it out for for Bruce as Batman. Mm. So, you know, he doesn't have to go straight from I'm going to fight crime to being Batman in his costume beating up criminals the next day. Mm. Um, and I think there's a decent amount of leeway in there you know to put stuff like that and you know to i mean i you know again there's certainly it it doesn't betray the character to have bruce wayne being potentially going to marry somebody or anything like that you know the sort of there's the again there's there's plenty of precedent for for romance in in batman stories Mm. that's not an issue um i i did feel slightly like the catalyst for him becoming full-on Batman, being jilted by someone he was going to marry, <laughs> is a bit odd. Is, but I don't think it, is it... It's not damaging in any way, I don't think. Is it not... Um, because I've... It, to, to flash back to what you said before, though, uh, the, the animated series does have kind of... It, it never shows any origin stuff, but it does have kind of like a flashback to him. There's an episode where he trains under Zatanna's father and we kind of get a flashback to him training then. And like, we basically, the flashbacks we get are him gaining different kind of skills around the world, but they're never really the focus of the episode. It's more kind of like a bit of context. Um, but would you would you not say the catalyst here is that, he, you know, he's on the path to becoming Batman anyway it's almost that this is just the only thing holding him back and so when that does when that does get taken away from him he just throws himself in entirely yeah i mean that is that is pretty much what happens um and as i say like you know i, I don't think there's any there's no character problem with that or hmm. you know it's not it's not a damaging part of of the law or anything like that so um yeah, I, d- I don't really have an issue. It, it works for this story. I think it's one of those things where actually taking this film in isolation works better. Like, if this had been an episode of the animated series, and, I mean, I know it, it is in the same continuity, but if you're if you're setting up a, a long-term Batman continuity where that's a significant part of it, then it might feel a bit weird. But, um, you know, as, as part of the movie in and of itself um because it because it's what the movie is about um then yeah i think it's you know and as i say like like none of the none of the individual elements and none of the rationale behind it is is anything that i think oh well that has no place in a batman story hmm. um you know the the idea of you know it's a core kind of fundamental thing about batman that um if Batman wasn't Batman and if what happened to Batman's parents hadn't happened to Batman's parents, then Bruce Wayne would have a certain kind of life and it would be the life that he pretends to have mm. um, when he's not being Batman. Um, and the conflict between the life that Bruce could have and the life that he actually has to have 
um, is a fairly well-trodden Batman trope. So, you know, that, again, there's nothing wrong with stories that explore that, and the Nolan films explored that very aspect as well. So, yeah. I've got to say, one of, the, one of the things that I particularly liked about this, I was not aware from just experiencing kind of Batman on the screen that there were, that, that the vow he makes as a child is one of the, the most important aspects of the character. Um, and I liked how this kept, it, you know, in the flashbacks, it, it kept referring back to him having made a vow. And I and, and I I love the actual vow itself in the comics, which I've just brought this up on Wikipedia. But by the spirits of my parents, I will avenge their deaths by spending the rest of my life warring on all criminals. Um, <laughs> that's fantastic, and it is it is a nice little way of summing up what what Batman does. And um, because this film is so much is so much tied up in you know the the sacrifices that he has to make to be Batman, and the kind of the 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 mindset you have to be in to be a vigilante but not to be uh, a killer or not to go out there and do it the wrong way or not as you know Alfred says at the end in one of my favorite lines in this film you know be consumed by vengeance and that that's the constant worry for him about Batman but but Bruce never never has strayed down that path to this point um and so I liked I liked all that stuff I liked how much it was concerned with um with Batman being being Batman or Bruce being Batman and what that meant for him as a person. And it reminded me of our, our conversation on the last podcast when we were talking about Superman and when he decides not to be Superman and it doesn't seem to cost him anything. Um, mm. uh, you, you, get, you, you get a definite sense of the stakes here. And I love that moment where he's kneeling in front of his parents' grave, grave and says, I, I never reckoned on being happy. So he's kind of like, it's that that acknowledgement that and being yeah. being by being Batman, he had kind of resolved that he was going to lead an unhappy life, and it, it stuns him that he's found happiness. And I I, I I love the idea for this character, and it it's just it's it's just one of those little things that um, makes this character in this universe work for me. Um, it's not overly complex, but it's. Uh, it's enough in an animated uh, Superman, uh, Batman cartoon to to uh, to sell me on that character, and to make me invest in a way that I don't think cartoons. I think cartoons for me rarely do. I get some kind of like base enjoyment out of them, but I I think there is there is something more to this than your average superhero <clears throat> cartoon. I mean, I I did think when I was watching this, like the best part of it is probably the script, because I I. I kept thinking if this was a live action movie, I'd probably be enjoying it a lot more than I am. Like, you know, it seemed really like well written and thematically complete and sort of had an eye on entertaining adults as well as kids. Like even, I thought even aimed at kids, it's quite a sophisticated story. Um, Mm. And it contrasts hugely with Planet Hulk, which was, when we watched that, <laughs> was just dull constantly and had absolutely nothing going on below the surface. Like, I think if they had made a movie of this script, it probably would have been a lot more popular than the cartoon of it was. I was stunned by how dense this was. I mean, because the the cartoons are 20, you know, the, the animated series episodes are 20 minutes and it's normally... Uh, 
it introduced one of the villains at the start. They've got a villainous plot and Batman goes off. And I, I did worry that this was just going to be kind of like, you know, like, you know, like the Simpsons movie is almost like two or three episodes <laughs> stitched together yeah. and elongated. Um, and I, the, the opposite to that is Planet Hulk, which has the kind of the, the adaptation and has just gone plot point, plot point, plot point, plot point, the end. Um, I was surprised. This is, this is a, 76 minute long movie um which that includes all of the um all of the credits and whatnot so it's, it's probably more about 68 69 and i didn't feel like it flew by i actually felt like i'd spent a good amount of time with this movie and that it actually it was actually kind of like the perfect length and that there was you know i was five minutes in and i already had a a big action sequence and i'd had the villain introduced and i'd had character beats um and uh there was there was just everything that i wanted it just went along at a pace um and i don't know whether that's just because the action sequences don't have to take as long in animation or (laughs) it it would be boring if they took longer so we get we get action beats but they're all kind of like peppered in amongst actual other other stuff that's uh, advancing the story. We don't pause for 15 minutes to have a shootout in the city or anything like that. Um, yeah, so I was I was surprised by how much there was to it. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like, I'm, I'm struggling to resolve the fact that I think it's, like, quite well designed and quite well acted and quite well animated and well written and my complete disengagement with the story as I was watching it. Because, <laughs> like, I just... It was fine. Like it was so what, okay. What do you put that down to? Is it is it the format then? Because if well, you're recognizing what... <laughs> it's doing lots of stuff well, something's holding you back. I I think it has an issue as a Batman story. Although I don't know if this would necessarily be the thing that would hold it back for James, because um, you know it's kind of a problem that with a lot of the Batman films that that we've talked about and that we will talk about, but. Um, I felt like for a lot of it, while while a lot of the backstory is about Bruce and Batman, in the present day part of the story, you could almost take Batman completely out of it <laughs> and it would still be the same story because it's actually about the Phantasm and the Joker rather than... like Like, Batman doesn't really have a role other than being accused of being the murderer... Batman doesn't really do anything, does he? <laughs> well, I and guess... that I think is my biggest problem with it is that it's it's it feels on the one hand like a story that's actually going into Batman's kind of character and background, but um, it's yet another Batman film that is far more interested in the people around Batman than Batman himself. And um, I was kind of just slightly yearning for it to turn into a, a Batman superhero story at some point, but it never really did. Mm. See, uh, I mean, I would, I would disagree. I think the film is preoccupied with Batman because that because all of that flashback stuff does exist. It just happens that the plot they decided to build it around, um, he's that the the current day the present day plot he's incidental to, but he's incidental to in a way that he's never absent from. He's always there and he's always investigating it. And the fact that he has relationships with the two people involved um, bring about his, you know, his his interference with it. Um, 
And so it didn't really bother me that it wasn't about him. In fact, I quite like the fact that it was a villain turning up, turning up in Gotham and they didn't have some vendetta against Batman, that they had something else to do and that Batman, because he's Gotham's protector, uh, was turning up and getting involved. <laughs> Even then, he's not really getting involved because he's Gotham's protector, because, you know, the Phantasm's just going around killing mob bosses. He gets involved because he's accused of being it. It's oh, like, it's, it's come about on. clearing his name more than... <laughs> no, he doesn't, want, he doesn't want the other vigilante to be going around killing people. I, but I believe no, in this. True, I believe it's... in this version of Batman. <laughs> I've got so much context for him that I, I, you know, I know that he wouldn't just do it to clear his own name. He doesn't I mean... care whether his name is cleared or not. <laughs> I think for me... It... Like the thing that stopped me enjoying it was probably that it like the even though the designs are nice, like I find the animation a bit simplistic and the backgrounds a bit static and it just it feels like uh the kind of kids cartoon that I wasn't a fan of. See, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I'd agree with you about the animation. The, it's I've talked about it before. I think when when we talk <clears> about Planet Hulk, this style of animation, and I, I say I'm not talking about the style of the designs because I think the style of the designs are, are well. That's the yeah, that's the thing. Its like its own thing, but the movement and the way people are animated, and there's a every so often there's there's bits with people's facial expressions and the way that they change, and it's the way that explosions are animated, and it's like, mm. I keep seeing cartoons that are animated like this, and it's a, it's a style and a feel that I, I don't really like, and for me it is a barrier. And I think with, admittedly, with the Batman stuff, I say, well, I'm not as keen on the character designs, what I did really like about this is I, I love the, the setting, I love the out-of-time setting, that they've gone, this is set in the present day, but we're going to make Gotham look like it's a combination of Art Deco mm. and a 1940s Oh, yeah, like the, especially the, like, um, the World's Fair stuff like, was all great, and like, I, oh, I, really, yeah. I really love the design of it, but it was the kind of realisation of that design into animation mm. that I just felt like it was it was too simple. And this is the thing. Maybe this is why I've had a problem with superhero animation is I don't think I've seen a superhero animation that is animated in a way that I like, with the possible exception of The Incredibles. Well, that's, um, that's, that's it, isn't it? I mean, this is a TV style of animation, and while it had a, a bumped-up budget... Um, it's it still is a early nineties TV animation, and I can understand the, because the, I've, the I found it is an early nineties TV animation, and I I love the animation style of The Simpsons. So yeah, but The Simpsons, I don't think plenty is... of kids cartoons from that era that I really like the animation style of. So um, I don't know why the superhero ones never seem to have the same style of animation as the other kids shows from that era that I like, mm. like a Rocco's Modern Life or even a Rugrats, <laughs> you know. Like, I like the animation style of those kind of shows. I don't know why the superhero shows don't have that style of animation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's fair because, I mean, this is probably something that when I'm watching the movie doesn't bother me because I've watched so much of the show and I'm used to it. But I, I, I absolutely know what you mean and I can I can understand why that would be a barrier. But going back to some of the some of the design stuff that does really work, like, I, I love the way that they build Gotham City and the World's Fair stuff's great and so I, I read that they had kind of they wanted to take the 
final showdown back there so you could have this kind of like giant versions of Batman and the Joker fighting above like a miniaturized Gotham City <laughs> and that it was going back to like the the style of when Batman and the Joker used to fight in front of like giant props in the background in early Batman comics and stuff like that. So am I right Batman's got like a giant penny in his Batcave yeah. or something like that? <laughs> that's that's always yeah. there, oh, isn't it? A... Yeah, that's a that goes back to I've 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 read the Batman story that that penny comes from. Hmm. Uh, it's a Joker story, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> um, it's a that that goes back to like early Silver Age, if not earlier. Yeah, and and like I said, this this does feel like a kind of coming together of lots of different iterations and versions of Batman. And uh, yeah, I I really like the. The design, Sebas. No, you said you had a problem with some of the character designs, but what do you think of uh, the Mark Hamill Joker? Because th- this is one that you know you'll see rundowns of all the different versions of the Joker, and the Hamill one often ends up quite near the top. And obviously, he's voiced the character in 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 different iterations, um, but this um... this was kind of. I, I I've got to be honest. If you ask, if you say the Joker to me in my head, this is the version of him that I see. Again, the design I'm not super keen on. <laughs> I think I think it's a bit too plain. Um I like the Joker to look a bit more ridiculous, to be honest. Um So which you know there's, which, there's... which versions or which what what kind of stuff are you talking about? Um I mean for me the the quintessential way uh, way to to do the look of the Joker is, is Brian Boland. It's it's the hair. Yeah. It's it give give the Joker more hair right. and really emphasize the green. Yeah, hair. I was I was um, wondering. I've like... never been as much of a fan of the big chin. I mean, Brian Boland does the quite big chin. Jim Aparo in the eighties did a really long chin joke. He read Death in the Family. Yeah, uh, I think. And, you know, his chin's <laughs> ludicrous. There, I don't think you need to go quite that far. Um, but yeah, I think the I think Killing Joke, Brian Boland Joker, and I think the suits need to be a bit sharper and a bit more purple and um i just find he sometimes looks a bit bland in the animated series um i do think mark hamill is great um there are times when he's doing a, an accent thing that i find a little bit annoying because it's like is he trying to do an english accent it is, for him there? the joker is british um, he definitely is british whatever mark hamill's doing yeah and that i'm not so keen on because you know the Joker's not British, but in terms of <laughs> how do you know what, what is? Yeah, the Joker's nothing <laughs> though, not. isn't he? Really, the Joker is. That's what I like yeah. about when when you get that flash of an earlier iteration of the Joker in this film. Um, it's like, oh, have they just given away something about their origin of the? Really, it's nothing, is it? It's just it's just the Joker in disguise at a different point, and the the animated series does that at various points. So it would be the Joker will turn. Will turn up somewhere with makeup off, blending into a different situation and making a nuisance of nuisance of himself. Oh, see, no, I, I I interpreted that as a Jack Napier type situation where he was a mob hoodlum before he became the. I Joker. know. Okay. I I definitely um, interpreted it as it's the Joker in disguise. Uh, okay, um, but no, I mean, I mean, other than the accent thing, like the you know the way that Mark Hamill switches between the jokiness and the menace mm. is definitely a key selling point of of that character and i do think as well that like that this film i know it's i know i i read about how they were sort of slightly reticent about just you know 
putting the Joker in it and making it a Joker story because they wanted it to be different and be its own story. But the film livens up whenever he's in it and the the plot gets more interesting when he's in it. I absolutely love that he gets hired by somebody to you know well, yes. to sort of to take on batman for them and to protect him from batman and the first thing he does is turns around and kills <laughs> yeah. him as as a me as a way of achieving his own end that is that's that's, that's i was i was joker. watching the film going um, like it's weird that they did an animated batman movie without the joker and then the joker like turns up i was like oh yeah okay <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's uh, they they hold him for just the right amount of time as well, because you do think for a while, like, oh, is Phantasm going to be the only one? Because, you know, the the temptation with a movie like this, I imagine, uh, given the 66 Batman movie and, you know, we've got Lego Batman movie coming, is to throw every villain in there to have like little cameos here, there and everywhere, because especially in an animated movie, it doesn't cost you an awful lot more to, you know, get different voice actors in to come and record a couple of lines. You know, this could have had Catwoman, mm. it could have had Harley, it could have had a bunch of characters. Um, but they decide to mostly leave it paired back. And I think it it gives the Joker a bit more um, importance when he turns up. It feels like a big moment when the Joker comes into this movie. Yeah. And he does, he does inject that streak of anarchy into this situation with exactly what you're saying, that the first thing he does is kill the bloke who's been hired to save him. And it suddenly ups the ante that Phantasm is coming for the Joker. He's not just coming for these generic mob bosses. We're about to see this new badass throw down with, you know, kind of the the ultimate villain. It's it's in fact I it's it's more of a finale to have Phantasm going after Joker than it would have just been for Batman to confront Phantasm, I think. Um and yeah, I I love Mark Hamill. I love Seb what you're talking about about his delivery kind of um skewing between like over the top silly quite british and then going into like dark growly menacing stuff that's how i like to read every line that i read of his in the comics you start off with the with the silliness and get down into the growl by the end of it um the only thing i find with with hamill's joker is that you always know that it's mark hamill and like i I find it hard not to picture him doing the lot because as well because you, you know, everyone's seen footage of whether you know whether it's like footage of him recording these lines or whether it's him being in things like the Flash. You know what Mark Hamill looks like <laughs> yeah. when he's doing this kind of thing, and it's hard not to picture him doing. His, I mean, you know, he's he's great. At his it. trickster voice is not a million miles away from his Joker, is it? No. Um, and of course, um, Jay and Silent Bob strike back. Yeah. As well. Oh, cock puncher. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Cocknocker. Cocknocker, yeah. yeah. Uh, do we do that film on the podcast at some point? Oh, there has been a comic of it. So <laughs> there is, there, there, there was a, a Blunt Man and Chronic comic before there was a Jay and Silent Bob movie. And part of it is adapted from the Chasing Dogma comic. Mm. So we yeah. could theoretically do and te- it. I mean, technically, there's you could probably make an argument for some superhero stuff in Dogma. And Chasing Amy is about comic book writers or comic book <laughs> artists. So... We should just do a Kevin Smith. Just do a Kevin Smith special. Just pick out, just pick out the uh, the comic book bits of him before he became uh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Before he decided to stop making comedies that he was good at and start to make horror movies that he's bad at. Yeah, and also just film other films that he's. He made a couple of bad comedies before he even got to that stuff. Anyway, well, we don't need to flip over to Kevin Smith. Um, <laughs> um, what I thought, another thing that this film did a very good job wa- of was um, 
obscuring the identity of the phantasm. And yeah. so, James, you, you, you're you probably the best case. Uh, you said you didn't even know the Joker was going to be in this. So you presumably did not know the identity of the phantasm going in. No. Did you um, go through this, the, the same roller coaster I did of, oh, is it that guy that's setting him up like in the police force? or And then, oh, is it her dad? Uh, yeah, is I it... spent most of the film thinking, oh, it's her dad. And then when mm. it was, when the twist was revealed, I was like, ah, now I think I was supposed to think it was her dad, but that it kind of makes sense that it's not. There's there's some additional context about it potentially being her dad, actually, which uh, <coughs> which is, uh, when I get to bring in some comics context, I will. Oh, I uh, look forward to that. Uh, um, I I was kind of the opposite. I I really hate being that guy because I hate it when people go, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I figured that out straight away. But as soon as she turned up, I was like, well, I've never heard of this character before. She's never been in the comics. If if they were doing somebody from the comics, uh, you, you know, if 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 they were doing it and she wasn't going to turn out to be the villain, it would have been Silver Saint Cloud or something. Um, the fact that it's a name and a character that I've never heard of before means that she is definitely fantastic. <laughs> was my line of thinking. But what about what about and the, also because uh, the voice the was electronic guy? obscured. What about the councilman guy? Because I thought it was him to start with. I was like, or at least that we were being. The only time I thought it was him was at the very start when he was doing the press conference having a go at Batman. But yes. that was before Andrea had turned up. So I thought it was him until she turned up, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I yeah, I just thought they I thought they did quite a nice job of it, and, and not that it matters if you know it's her. Um, we, we should we should tell our uh, listeners the identity of the phantasm is uh, Andrea, the the love interest that he's he's been flashing back to. Um, apparently, um, it, she was voiced by Dana Delaney, who uh, was cast as the voice of Lois Lane in Superman the animated series, off the strength <laughs> of this performance. So uh, I mean, when. You know, when it was revealed, I did kind of think, oh, I should have guessed that, because there's like a long tradition in comics of having like a a character who appears to be male, but is actually female once they get unmasked. Mm. Like, I can think of at least two examples of it happening in comics. And it was the fact that the, the Phantasm had like an electronically distorted yeah. voice as well. Um is always a bit of a, a <laughs> like, but I think that, I think it's trope. the kind of reveal that the first time it happens, it like blows you away. Because you're like, ah, I did not see past my own sexism. <laughs> but I'm, I'm specifically thinking of when Matty Franklin was revealed as impersonating Spider-Man the first time. And also the second Citizen V who turned out to well, be a woman. It also goes back as far as um, uh, um, I cannot operate on this man. He's my <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Explain the reference. It's an old lateral thinking puzzle. Um, a man <clears throat> and his son are in a car accident. The man dies. The son is badly injured. He's rushed to the hospital. Uh, the surgeon takes one look at him and says, I can't operate on this man. He's my son. Why? Because the surgeon's his mother. Uh, but you assume that... Yeah, because you're a sexist. Yeah. There's another one, which oh, is... Um, a policeman's walking down the corridor in a hotel and he hears a woman cry, for God's sake, don't kill me, John, and a gunshot. He runs into the room and there is uh, a doctor... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of another occupation that's non-gender specific uh, and a postman um, in a doctor, a teacher and a postman standing over a dead body on the floor um, the policeman immediately arrests the postman how does he know that the postman did it and it's because the other two are women you're listening to Lateral Very Thinking good. Universe
<laughs> Someone should do a podcast about lateral thinking puzzles. You set the puzzle, you go you go away, you think about it for a week, you come back and you get told the answer. I'm going to do that podcast. <laughs> I'm not going to do that podcast. <laughs> well, someone someone out there has heard the idea and is prepping it as we speak. Um, Usually the answer in lateral thinking puzzles relates to cannibalism <laughs> on a surprisingly <laughs> frequent basis. Yeah, my mind doesn't always shoot in that direction, I've got to be honest. Um, okay, well, I think one of the last things I would like to talk about with Mask of the Phantasm is uh, the music. Um, this is... Uh, this is uh, it, it has shades of the Burton, the Danny Elfman... Batman stuff um, but I love the music for the animated series like I love the theme music which pops up kind of it's the it's the core theme in the score here um, but I also love the the opening title music with the kind of like the Latin chanting over the top of it uh, I after I finished the film I was kind of like putting together the doc for the podcast and um, and just doing doing a little bit of googling about the film and um, the whole soundtrack's on Spotify so I was listening along as I was doing it and it was really getting me in a great frame of mind um, is there is there anything like that about the movie particularly that, that you enjoyed or you know any, any, what do you think of the music um, specifically I spent the whole Thing just going like wow they really got some Tim Burton impersonators in to do the score <laughs> Danny Hoffman impersonator like that, yeah sorry um, <laughs> yeah that was all I that, that was all it I did was, for me I was a little surprised by the somewhat out of place song over the closing credits. yeah that's that weird. was, yeah, that was crazy. Like a consequence of the fact that it was released in cinemas and I bet if it had gone straight yeah. to DVD it wouldn't have had that at the end <laughs> but that felt just tonally so completely out of place with the rest I, it felt, well, I had the, felt very I had the early 90s on, didn't it yeah well I had the soundtrack on shuffle when I was listening to it and that came on because I kind of like as soon as the credits came on I paused and um, stopped uh, the, this film by the way is available if anyone's an Amazon subs- uh, Amazon Prime subscriber it's available as is all of the animated series on there which is how, I, how I've watched all of this um, so yeah would recommend but yeah you're quite Pereira legally, you can be sure of that. the end credits sorry I said you're quite it legally you can be sure of that Yes, I do for all the films on this podcast, James. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, Tia Carrera, very, very weird. Um, I think I that is bizarre. Actually, I think I prefer her singing in Wayne's World. Um, <laughs> yeah, any, any anything else? Any little aspects of this film that you particularly enjoyed? Didn't enjoy that you want to? Uh, want to draw attention to before we bring things to a close um i mean i said i think i did already talk about the the production design and i think it um, you know I, I, in terms of liking the style of it and liking the kind of fusion of, of things that they do and that out of timeness and um, but i i think as well i say in as much as i've talked about not really liking the style of the animation um there's a there's a really nice level of attention to detail in in backgrounds in terms of the way things are designed like it 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 often feels like there's thought gone into it which you can't always say about backgrounds in animation <laughs> or indeed about backgrounds in comics come to mm. that um so 
yeah, I just I, I found myself in quite a lot of scenes, quite conscious of, oh, that's quite stylish, and it always has a, a feel of its own. And you know, as I say it's. I think it's a very well thought out feel. They've been very conscious of what specific influences they've put into it, and I I always kind of have a soft spot for things where you can't really tell when it's supposed to be set and things are, are deliberately anachronistic. So as I say, you know, it's it, there's no suggestion that this continuity is set actually in the 1940s because there are modern things about it. Um, but the cars and even the planes and the general style of it um, is a is a mishmash of, of old movie mm. styles. Um, and like I say, that's that's always something that... I get a bit of a kick out of, and so, that's not um, always like that's not always easy to get right because I think that's what Gotham mm. was trying you to can do. Clash the elements, badly. yeah. I think Goth- yeah. Gotham <laughs> Gotham's first first season. I I remember about five six episodes in going, I can't get my head around what city mm. this takes place in because it doesn't seem recognizable mm. as anything you know any, anything that I can buy into. Um, I don't know whether they. Got I mean, we 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 talked about that. the uh, the Burton. Batman films doing it well and you know I think they do it really well as well um, you, you you never feel jarred in the Burton films by um, the age of a, of a vehicle or the look of a building suddenly seeming out mm. of place because again I think it's it's carefully thought out in terms of what specific things they've chosen to mix together some some anachronistic elements mix together better than others mm. basically um, and I know that this this film is very much following in that line, but it is kind of doing its own thing with it as well. Yeah, because so, Burton is very um, you know you're watching you're watching a Tim Burton world on film, and so you can kind of mm. that's kind of his stock and trade. And I think it's very easy there to buy into anything that Tim Burton throws at you. Uh, whereas mm. uh, and and because he is he is often trading in kind of older like gothic uh, throwbacky kind of elements in in any of his films. Um, yeah, whereas I'm not sure, I'm not sure uh, many cartoons have this kind of specific sense of place and belie- mm. believability of a world that the animated series has. And I should point out from reading the uh, Batman Adventures, that's not, it's not always a given that they manage to achieve that in the pages. <laughs> um, sometimes mm. characters get drawn a little bit wrong, but um, there are. Uh, there are certain issues from what I've read where I go, oh wow, the look of this is fantastic. Or when you were saying how kind of like sometimes you like the character designs when they have a certain expression, but then the expression changes and you're like, oh, I don't quite like how that works. Um, it's it's sometimes even more successful in the comics that I've read, just the stills of these characters, um, particularly with like characters like the Joker. It's it's great to kind of show that flip from the silly to the malevolent between two panels where you don't have to do the awkward animated transition. That's um, just me standing for that comic again. Uh, James, anything <laughs> that you particularly want to uh, want to bring attention to before we draw this to a close? Uh, I think, to be honest, I said everything I've thought about this film. <laughs> like, <laughs> it it feels like a really good episode of the cartoon, but it, ultimately it feels like a cartoon. Like it mm. never really transcends into being something sort of with broader appeal. Like I think if any of us showed our parents this Batman film, they'd be like, "Why am I watching this cartoon?" Oh yeah, you've got to be a you've got to be a superhero nerd to enjoy it. I think. Yeah, and I think that's not necessarily true of everything. Like I think there are car- like no specifically probably some certain anime movies like Your Name, which just came out. I think you could show that to anyone and they would be engaged. Like Ghibli stuff, if you like that, you know Disney films. But I think Batman Mask of the Phantasm is very much just 
uh, Saturday for kids or superhero sort of writ nerds. large. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's very true. Um, I definitely want to. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick out a few choice episodes of Batman the Animated Series and try and get you to watch them. There's one springing to mind where all of the all, like there's a group of villains who've got together. There's Killer Croc and the Joker and um, Poison Ivy, I think, and a, f- a couple of others who get together for like a late night poker game and they all tell a story about the time that they nearly killed the bat. Um, and it's, it's it's really fantastic. And there's another, the, one of the last Harley Quinn episodes where she kind of teams up with Batman for a mission and performs uh, this song on stage at one point is also particularly great. There's times where I think it really transcends um, just being a Batman cartoon. Um so I'll, I'll try. I'll try. I'll try and maybe win you guys round to these uh, <laughs> to Batman the Animated Series um, because I love it so much, and I think this is a very good feature length version of the series. I don't think it hits the heights of what the series does, but I think it's a it's a good story, which is um, yeah, surprisingly thematically consistent, and uh, yeah, it has a very a very uh, a very impressive screenplay for a, a straight-to-DVD movie that kind of got quickly bumped up onto the big screen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I'm a big fan, um, but you guys are now going to recommend me some uh, comic books, which hopefully I'm going to be a big fan of as well, based on Mask of the Phantasm. Um, and Seb, I'll come to you first this week. Well, actually... Uh, well, actually, I'm... Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna do both, because James didn't really have one to recommend. Okay. I, have, I have got something you know, I'm going to recommend, but I'll, I'll, okay. I'll... Yeah, it's not a comic, so... Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to recommend two things, because there's one... Basically, before I, I watched this and read about it, there was something that I wanted to recommend, because it was a Batman story that I really want to recommend, that I want you to read. And then... After watching it, um, well, firstly, watching this, I was like, oh, there's elements of this that seem strangely familiar, which I didn't expect because I thought it was entirely, you know, the phantasm and the characters were entirely created for the film. Um, so then I read about it and discovered that, yeah, no, there is a, a direct influence. So, um, But the thing about that comic um, is that it's not very good. So I'm going to recommend it and you're going to have to go and read it. Right. But um, be warned that it's not the greatest ever Batman story and it's a bit controversial. Um, so I'll do that one first, actually, because it's the one that's got the context for the film. So um, it's called Batman Year Two. Um, it's issues 575 to 578 of Detective Comics from 1987. Um, it is essentially, as you can probably gather, a storyline that followed on from Batman Year One. Um, but it's not, you know, it, it wasn't sort of intended as an official sequel, and, and Frank Miller's got nothing to do with it. It's just that another writer wanted to do a story set in the early years of Batman. Right, okay. And DC basically went, well, we've just had a big hit with Batman Year One, so let's take this early years Batman story and call it Batman Year Two. Um, so it's written by Mike W. Barr, and it's drawn by, um, some of it's drawn by Alan Davis, who's a quite uh, well known, respected British artist. Um, and weirdly, um, when Alan Davis, um, I'm not sure if it was due to scheduling reasons, left, uh, he's replaced by Todd McFarlane, um, <laughs> a name that you may well have heard of. But Todd McFarlane, before he was famous at Marvel, um, right. and when he instead came on and, and was doing stuff at Detective Comics. So it's some of Todd McFarlane's earliest comics work. And just and just um, to check, this is this is all happening before QI. Is it Jonathan Creek era? <laughs> <laughs> Davis I. Okay, okay. Um, So 
it's um, it's set in the early years of Batman, um, so it is kind of you know when he's been Batman for a little while, but not very long, and he's still kind of finding his way. Um, it features a villain called the Reaper, whose design is not dissimilar to the Phantasm, but also quite different in some ways. Um, and the Reaper has a daughter who is for a short time Bruce Wayne's fiance. Ah. So you can sort of see the parallel. Basically, what you were saying about thinking that. Um, the phantasm was going to be the dad in the original story that this is not really based on but sort of inspired by um the, the he is the dad basically right. um so you know don't don't expect the same twist to pop up in in <laughs> year 2 um it's not a great story and it's got some quite controversial elements it, it it has batman using a gun um and it's sort of the point is that he it's in the early days and it's before he learns that he shouldn't really use a gun but it's still it it's the gun that killed his parents what? and he also actually yeah he also actually ends up teaming up briefly with Joe Chill um and again Jesus. you can see that they were trying to do something a bit bizarre and interesting but it doesn't really work it's just like this is not something that that Batman should be doing at all um so yeah I can't wholeheartedly recommend it but I think as someone who liked this film it's good for you to see the context of of where it came from um a Batman comic that I can recommend wholeheartedly and I, I just want an excuse to get you to read um and I, I don't know what other opportunity we'd have to do so um is Batman R.I.P which you've probably heard of yeah um, yeah, so it's part of Grant Morrison's run. Um, it is from part way through Grant Morrison's run. It's probably about slightly less than halfway chronologically throughout the whole thing. But I don't think you need to have read the stuff before it. I think it holds together quite self-contained quite well. Like some of the elements of it have been set up beforehand, but I think it it introduces you well enough to to what they are. Probably the biggest thing you need to know um, is whether or not you're aware of the existence of Damian Wayne at this point, who is um, Bruce's son with Talia, mm-hmm. um, as in Talia, Ra's al Ghul's daughter. Yeah, um, because da- Damian and Talia, they're not an integral part of this particular story, but Damian had been introduced at that point and they pop up in this. So if you're surprised by them, it's like, because they've already okay. been established. Um, but it's basically an absolutely fantastic six-issue storyline. It's issues, uh, you probably read it in trade anyway, but it's issues 676 to 681 of Batman. Um, it's drawn by Tony Daniel, who's not the best artist on the Morrison run. Like He's competent. There's, there's nothing bad about his storytelling. It's just that if this had been drawn by like Frank Quitely or somebody, it would be one of the greatest comics ever <laughs> rather than... Um, it's, it's, it's very, very good. It's, it's, it's maybe my favourite Batman story, full stop. Um, it's just really a story about what Batman is capable of is is the best way I can put it. And, I'm, uh, and it does have the Joker in for a bit as well. I'm right in thinking on uh, that the Grant Morrison Batman, he introduced the idea of Damian Wayne? Yes. And then yeah. and he did a bunch the, of the, stuff kind of reconciling all of the complicated history of Batman and stuff like that. Yeah, well, actually, he didn't. He didn't introduce the idea of Damian Wayne in. Well, he introduced <laughs> him into continuity. Yeah. Basically, um, Damian Wayne was first created in an Elseworld story right. um, called Son of the Demon in the eighties. Um, and so the idea that Bruce and Talia had a son was in that story, but it wasn't in continuity. And then the first arc of Morrison's run brings Damien into actual continuity. Um, and <laughs> Simple, then, really, when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and then obviously eventually he becomes Robin. He's not Robin at this point in the story. Um, Tim Drake is still Robin at this point. Um, and also, the f- I mean, I don't want to spoiler it too much, but the fact that it's called Batman R.I.P. is quite confusing because although they did kill off Batman for a bit, it doesn't happen in this. It happens in Final Crisis. But this story isn't so much about the literal death of Bruce Wayne as it is about the death of the idea of Batman. And it's oh, it's all it's all thematic and it's it's all about Batman history. And um, it's just amazing it's just um, i mean i don't know if it'll be a little bit too dense and a little bit too complicated and i don't mean that in a i don't think you're intelligent <laughs> i've got to say just in a <laughs> i've got to say i read it and yeah. i found it way too dense so <laughs> <laughs> um it's hard for me to tell how it comes across to someone not already as invested in batman as i am um but i do think that the story has a quite strong through line anyway and i hope that you can get on with it but I just, I just love it. I just, I come back to it so much. It's got a few moments that I think are just some of the greatest Batman moments ever. Like, like two or three proper solid all-time great Batman. See, moments. just, just so, to add a um, counterpoint to that, like, I didn't get on with Morrison's Batman run at all until uh, Dick took over. Like at that point, it suddenly became excellent. Yeah. But everything before it's, that, I just struggled to engage with. At some point, we can hopefully get you to read Batman and Robin, which follows on directly from this and has Dick Grayson as Batman, and which is awesome. But I wanted you to read this first. so <laughs> Great. Okay, so Grant Morrison, Batman. Look forward <laughs> to luck. those. James, you had something as well? Uh, I'm not... Actually, I'm not sure whether... What to go with it. Just quickly, have you seen the X-Men cartoon? Bits, yes. Okay. Um, in that case, I'm going to say, like... You don't have to talk about these on the podcast, but I would say anyone who enjoys the Batman animated series should go and listen to Kevin Smith's podcast, which is called Fat Man on Batman. And like the first maybe 25 to 30 episodes is him interviewing people involved with Batman. And there's a lot specifically of voice actors and designers involved with the animated series. Mm. And having never seen the series in any like significant way um i listened to all of these one summer when they were coming out uh and just i found them all incredibly entertaining and gripping and informative and if you can skip the 20 minutes of kevin smith talking to himself while he's introducing the the interviewee (laughs) like they are i would say probably some of the best like records of behind the scenes information that has been produced on any cartoon series ever because like you get essentially the life stories of all these voice actors and then all their involvement with the animated series and then what they did after and how it affected them and their relationship specifically with Batman. Like, it's incredible. If nothing else, just go and listen to the Kevin Conroy one, which, like, he's a guy who's obviously, he's like a jobbing voice actor. But at the same time, his everything you learn about his life just astonished me. And, like, the the idea that this essentially a non-nerd who had no prior existing relationship with Batman could come into the character and, like, do such a good job with it and all that stuff. Like, it's really just... just really interesting. Um, So I think anyone who likes the animated series should go and check those out. Excellent. So a Kevin Smith-heavy podcast for us today. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, we'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch. And before I tell you what the question is, I'm going to rule out Batman and Spider-Man because we've just watched a Batman one and there is a Spider-Man one coming. So which comic book character would be best suited 
to an animated film adaptation. You can pick anyone for this apart from Batman and Spider-Man. Um, Seb, I'll come to you first. So we can have someone who has been in cartoons before, sure. but just not Batman or Spider-Man, right? Uh, so Plastic Man. Um, DC Comics character, although he's actually been around since like the golden age. I think he was around in the 40s at a company called Quality Comics. He was created by a cartoonist called Jack Cole, who was quite famous for doing like Playboy comics and stuff like that. Right. Um, but basically, Plastic Man, he was pretty much the first funny superhero um, and his power is that he can um, basically transform his body into pretty much anything. He's, his body is essentially made of plasticine and is pretty much indestructible. The only caveat is that usually he can't change like his colour, so he always whatever he transforms into the shape of is also wearing his costume. Um, and he's a reformed crook um, called Eel O'Brien, so part of what makes him fun is that like he was a crook and decided to become a superhero to make money and then sort of became a superhero, um, you know, generally anyway he's a really interesting character who's never really properly become a-list um but to make him work you couldn't do him in live action but you could do a cartoon Mm -hmm. that was essentially um the lego movie meets chuck jones looney tunes cartoons and just go completely ludicrous with what you have him turn into and what you have him do and just go relentlessly over the top um i would like to see it written by the all-powerful lord miller and i would like to see it starring steve carell as the voice of plastic man (laughs) fantastic um speaking of kind of more obscure funny batman villains um, I don't know whether he was created by the animated series, but he shows up in it. Um, Condiment King. He's also going to be in the <laughs> Lego Batman movie, and I think they're going to have some of the weird, obscure, funny Batman villains in there as well. So who knows? Plastic Man might show up. Um, James, can you be a Plastic Man movie? Uh, I mean, the only animated series that I want to see which hasn't already happened... Because I, obviously I would love them to do an animated X-Men film so that they could do the characters some amount of justice. Um, <laughs> I'm being very harsh on Brian Singer's X-Men films. <laughs> like They're fine. <laughs> they're okay. But I would like to see them done properly. Um, and by also properly, just... I mean like they are in the comics slash we're in the 92 animated series. So just a generic X-Men well, no, animated film? That's, that's what I was thinking of suggesting but what i'm actually suggesting is that someone does a scott pilgrim animated series because if any concept was underserved by a single movie it was scott pilgrim and like there's so much material they left out of even like just from the books uh and and we've already seen how good it is yeah they did that little short that was excellent (laughs) and like i think Brian Lee O'Malley probably doesn't have any interest in going back to those characters which is fair enough but i think there are lots of people out there who would get the style of Scott Pilgrim, like things like the adult swim people, you can imagine doing amazing things with those characters and that concept and just the aesthetic of it. Um, what if they just did Edgar Wright does it with all of his original cast? Yeah, they could, voices. they could just get the cast back and do like, you know, six animated movies adapting the books, even without any <laughs> original material, it would be, you know, great to see. I'd even buy into that just for like some little animated shorts of just like putting together some of the sequences from the comic that didn't make it into the film. Yeah. I mean, I I just think as good, as much as I love the movie, I think they should, you know, there's too much material being left on the page that would look amazing animated. Hmm. 
I'm really torn on this one. I like both the ideas. I, to be honest, I thought I would have had this in the bag with Plastic Man, but James has really pulled one out of his pocket. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when when James um, had generally X Men, I was like, oh well, Seb's one then. But now, <laughs> hey, I'm just recency bias. I'm going James. Yes, let's have, let's have some animated Scott Pilgrim. Is that two in a row? I'm Did I win last week as well? You have just you've just turned down a Lord and Miller movie. They're too busy. <laughs> I don't think we can get them. I think we'd end up. I mean, I'm not confident we're going to get Edgar Wright. I think we're going to have to replace him with Peyton Reed, to be honest with you. But Lord and Miller, there's absolutely no chance. Okay. You've turned down a Steve Carell superhero movie. Well, we've got the Despicable Me supervillain movies, I guess. <laughs> Are we going to do them on the podcast? Probably not. <laughs> Megamind, though. I'll do, I'll, I'll do Megamind. Yeah, that would be interesting. That would be interesting. That's Will Ferrell, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but that is it for this week's podcast. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. You can find more episodes of the show on cinematicmultiverse.com. And you can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter at cu underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Sir, I've seen you go through similar phases in 2016 and 2012 and 2008 and 2005 and 1997 and 1995 and 1992 and 1989 and that weird one in 1966. Cinematic Universe returns uh, before too long with the Lego Batman movie.